Well, let's jump in. Uh, Exodus 15, 1 to 21, uh, a biblical theology of worship. I mean, this is a passion of mine, biblical theology, understanding the big picture of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the themes that tie it all together, how it all points to Jesus. That is our task at hand. Um, before we get into our passage, I've promised every week an outline. This is really simple. Okay, so if you're taking notes, uh, chapter 15, 1 to 19, you can just put song, S-O-N-G, and then verses 20 and 21, response. <laughs> song and response. And what we're going to see in this passage, and I hope you were listening carefully as Brother Paul read, praise begets praise. Praise begets praise. Here's the big idea. Worship is the appropriate response to God's gracious work of rescue. What has just happened? What is the context? God has supernaturally delivered his people. He's brought them through the Red Sea. The waters have been parted. And as uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army pursue, what happens? They are swallowed up by the waters of God's wrath. God rescues his people for his glory, and so that Egypt and the nations and Israel might know that God is the Lord. And what is the appropriate response to rescue? We see in our passage, it is worship. It is praise. Amen? If you love your Bible and you know your Bible, you know that the Bible has a lot to say about worship. A key theme in Scripture is worship. When we gather, we, we worship. We could even say we were created to we were created to worship. And what's really cool is that the Bible begins and ends on this note of worship. And this is what I think is going to be helpful. This is the biblical theology of worship. The theme of worship can be used to tell the story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And that's what I want to attempt to do now before we jump into our passage. I want to step back and I want to look at a biblical theology of worship. I want us to understand how worship helps us to make sense of the big story of Scripture from creation to new creation. Are you with me? Let's go. All right. So creation, I think I put this in your handout. We were created to do what? To worship. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. God, at the very outset of Scripture, is established as the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, and therefore deserving of our praise and allegiance. He made all, therefore he owns all, therefore all is meant to praise and worship him. And then we get to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind, distinct from all the rest of God's creation, mankind, Adam and Eve, have been uniquely made in the image of God for the specific purpose of reflecting his glory in his world. I've used this illustration before. This is from ancient history. In ancient times, whenever a king would conquer a new land he would set up a statue of himself and place it there for all to see. So again, king conquers new territory. First thing he does, he erects a statue of himself there, declaring his presence and his glory. God made us in his 
image to spread his glory throughout his created world. We were made to do what? We are made to worship God. Genesis 2.15, this is really, really, really cool. Okay, so check this out. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And here are the two verbs, avav, shamar, to work it and to keep it. To do what? To work it and to keep it. Let me unpack these verbs. So the two verbs used here are work, avav, which means to serve or to minister and is often used in the context of worship. And then the verb keep, which is shamar, which means to watch over or to guard. This is the cool part. These same two verbs are used of priests in the tabernacle in Numbers 3, 7 to 8. So Adam and Eve were to function in a priestly role in the Garden of Eden, ministering to the Lord and guarding God's sacred space against intruders, i.e. the snake, the serpent, Satan himself. They were to keep it holy. And not only were God's image bearers to serve as worshipers, but this vocation applies to all of God's creation. Everything God made, he made for his his glory to worship him. That's Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. That's creation. We were created to do what? To worship God. Now, have we done that? Well, you could say, well, the stars shine. The sun sets. The trees. Tree? <laughs> I love trees. You can ask my wife. I love. I, I have a thing for trees, man. I love walking under trees and seeing the sun's light shine through the leaves, and I'll just sit there and look at them again. So the trees are doing what they were made to do. What is not doing its job? What has failed? Who has failed? We have. So here's the fall. Because of sin, we refuse to worship God. What were we made to do? Worship God. But because of sin, we refuse to do it. Our worship has been turned upside down. This is Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's adding something there, isn't she? <laughs> but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, rendering God obsolete, superfluous, right? I mean, you can be God. Essentially, is what Satan's holding out. Disobeying, you can be God. You can be in charge. You can be the top dog. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This was a failure to do what? What were those two verbs? To serve and to guard, to protect, right? That's what worshipers do. We worship, we protect God's sacred space. You could say, as Brother Aaron said, baptism is a way that we guard the gate. Amen? We care about doctrine. I think it was Mike. Where's Mike? You, you mentioned, brother, you have discernment now by God's grace to discern false teaching, right? That, we're called to do that as a church. That's part of guarding God's people in this sacred space, the church that the Spirit of God dwells in. 
Did they do their job, Adam and Eve? No. They did not give the Lord his due. We owe the Lord our trust, our obedience, our allegiance. Adam and Eve rejected God's word and disobeyed the king of creation. Romans 1, 21 to 25, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, why? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. Because of sin, we fail to worship God as we should. We worship, and this is the gross, gross tragedy of idolatry, is we worship the creature rather than the creator. We focus on the gift rather than the giver. Lord, help us. Because of sin, we have turned worship upside down. But what's the good news, friends? Redemption. Christ came to restore our creative purpose, which is to worship God in spirit and in truth. He came to save and create for himself a worshiping people. John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, Christ came to restore our creative purpose. We see this, I think, most clearly in the Great Commission. Let's go back to verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make what? Make disciples of all nations. Make more what? Followers of Jesus, those who give their allegiance to Christ and not to themselves or the world baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When we go and make disciples, we are seeking to make true worshipers of the one true God. Amen? I've mentioned that multiple times. What should motivate our evangelism? God's glory. Because what happens when by grace a sinner, a rebel who was beforehand shaking his fist at God, here's the gospel, the Spirit gives them new life to trust in Jesus, they're now raising their hands to God in praise. Amen? Man, that's incredible. Our new vocation is to call unbelievers to worship the one true God. And then we have new creation. And this is the end of our story. We know the end of the story. Isn't that cool? Amen? We know the end of the story. For all eternity, God's people will serve and worship the king. Revelation 22.3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. What will we, the redeemed in Christ, be doing in the new heaven and the new earth? Singing to in serving the King of Kings with the King's redeemed people in glory forever. 
Now, if that doesn't get you pumped, you may be dead. I'm serious. If you don't long for that, if you're not excited about that, if you don't wake up thinking about that, Lord, help us. In sum, we were created to worship. Agreed? But something happened. Because of the fall, because of sin, we fail to worship as we should. Our worship has got turned upside down. Rather than acknowledging the creator, we give our hearts to the creature. But Christ came, this is redemption, to restore our creative purpose. And those who trust in Christ are brought by God's grace into God's family, a family newly created to worship God. And those who trust in Christ will gather with the saints in glory to praise the Lamb of God. How long? Forever. You know, too often we associate worship with the singing only of our gathering every Lord's Day, that 15 to 20 minutes that we have set apart, right, to sing, which is important. But we say, hey, how was worship today? Well, you know, I I like the songs. It's great. But isn't worship more than that, body? It's offering our whole lives to God as our reasonable response to the gospel. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And yet, everybody say, and yet. Because we're going to focus on this. And yet the Bible has a lot to say about singing. And if you've been gathering with us on Wednesday nights for our study, you know it's not my gift. (laughs) But I'm still called to do it and to do it joyfully. And I love to sing. Ask my wife. I love to sing. I think you already know that. I just know I'm not good at it. You watch American Idol, if you've ever seen the show, and I may get a text. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember this is what would infuriate me is these young contestants would come on thinking they were just the best singer in the world. Their mama told them that. Why did she lie? And I'm like, wow, I can actually sing better than somebody. But they're convinced, like, no, I'm, I'm the... No. But listen, in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter, right? The Lord just wants us to do what? To sing joyfully. That is our proper response to the gospel. So this, the, the singing that we do, takes place primarily in our corporate worship together, the gathering of God's people every Lord's Day. God's rescued people are commanded to worship through song when they come together. And I'm thankful, brother. I love doing that. But many in God's church neglect this time and fail to see how significant this corporate time of worship really is, right? And that's sad. It's a travesty. So what does the Bible say about this? Psalm 30, verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Do what? Sing praises to the Lord. That's a command. Psalm 33, 1 to 3, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. And if I'm not mistaken, was the lyre kind of like a little string instrument? Okay. What do you play? I play the lyre. That can be really confusing, but it's spelled L-Y-R-E. Do they make those today? My goal, brother, to become a skilled lyre player. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Well, I'm good at that, the loud shouts. Psalm 95.1, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Amen? A joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Who is the object of our praise? The Lord. The rock of our salvation. Psalm 149.1, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Now you're thinking, well, those are all Old Testament, right? Well, let's, let's jump to the new. Colossians 3.16, I reference this quite a bit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then lastly, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And those filled with the Spirit do what? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So does the Bible have a lot to say about singing? With the redeemed, to the Lord, joyfully, with thankfulness. Amen. And as seen with Exodus 14, 30 to 31, worship is our appropriate response to God's rescue. What do the rescue do? We, we worship, and one way we express our worship is through, through our singing. Exodus 14, 30 to 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Our awe and faith is to be expressed through song, as seen in the very next section, our passage, Exodus 15, 1-21. This is the point God's word is making. God's rescued people are called to respond in song. Again, one aspect of this worship is the gathering of God's redeemed people for the purpose of praise, singing together to the Lord. So let's define worship. I want to define it, and then I want to look at several key terms in our passage. And I have three points, and I think this would be really helpful that I see in our text, right? But not yet. We're almost there. This is from Joseph Carroll. He writes, this is a really good definition. To worship is to attribute worth to an object. To worship is to attribute worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth to an object. Worship, and this is really good, is the worth-ship of the one you worship. And who is more worthy than our Lord? Say it. None. Worship is how we acknowledge the worth of Jesus Christ, our King. So if you're not worshiping, you're not acknowledging his worth. And that's very significant. Um, should I read this whole quotation? Yes. There's a great book by Daniel Block. It's titled, For the Glory of God. That's the title. The subtitle, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship. Really good stuff. He lists eight key elements central to worship. I'm going to quickly read through this, but just pay attention. First, the scriptures call for worship that is true as opposed to false. Second, true worship involves reverent awe. Third, true worship is a human response. If you don't get all this and you want it, just call me, text me, email me, and I'll, I'll send it to you. Fourth, true worship involves action. Fifth, 
True worship expresses the submission and homage of a person of lower rank before a superior. That's really good. Who is superior to us? The Lord. Six, while human subordinates may express their humility before human superiors by bowing and prostration, only the divine sovereign is worthy of actual worship, assuming that we understand worship as veneration of the one who is the source and sustainer of all things and on whom we are absolutely dependent. Seventh, true worship involves reactive communication. Eighth, for worshippers' acts of homage to be favorably received by God, they must align with His will, which is found where? His word, rather than with the impulses of depraved human imagination. And I think this is the problem with so much worship in the church today, is it's not based on what? The word. And that will get us into what? Trouble. Okay, so what must undergird and inform our worship? The Bible. I mean, how foolish. It's like that dad, sorry dad, on Christmas Eve, you get this big package, you're, you know, my kid wanted a playhouse, and you throw the instructions away, and you try to build it on your own, and what typically happens? I have like 35 pieces. What do I do with these? And your wife says, well, did you look at the instructions? No, I just did it myself. Fool, right? I mean, come on. Who's been there, dads? I know what you're talking about. Don't look at me. No, we've all been there, right? Guys, where do we go? What is our instruction manual for doing the most important thing we were made to do? The Bible, which shows us how to worship. Simply put, our worship is our appropriate response to God, informed by his word. He tells us how, and he is the reason why. He tells us how, and he is the reason why. <clears throat> this, is, this is great. Man, I love Hebrew. Um, I've studied it for a long time. I actually find it easier than Greek because it's much more consistent language, even though I'm reading right to left, so it's counterintuitive. But listen to this. This is really cool. There are two verbs in our passage that need to be addressed before moving on. And these verbs include the verbs to praise. So everybody say to praise. And to exalt. And they both appear in verse 2, chapter 15. So now we're getting into our text, all right? Exodus 15, 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So to praise and to exalt. To praise. Nava. Nava. Oh, it means to beautify or to adorn. To adorn with praise. It literally means to decorate. To decorate him. To decorate him. Well, here's, here's a good illustration. A soldier is decorated for his courage, for what he's done in battle. We are to decorate the Lord with praise and honor for what he's done for us. Amen? What a privilege that we get to decorate the Lord with praise and honor. That is what praise means. And then we have the verb to exalt, room. Everybody say room. You got to do the room like that. Let me see your chins move. Room. Man, you guys are terrible. Come on. I'm not moving my face for that dude. Come on. I'm coming for you. It means to lift up or make great. To lift up or make great. The purpose of God's rescued people is to lift up the Lord. Listen, to make him great in all that we do. To pursue his glory. That's what it amounts to. 
We don't add to God's greatness, by the way, but we do bring attention to it. Amen? We don't add to it. We bring attention to it. And that is exaltation, bringing attention to his greatness. And what does praise mean to you? Oh, come on! To decorate, thank you. I was going to cry. I've never cried. Just kidding. What does Exodus 15 teach us about God in corporate worship? Let's jump to our passage. What should be our focus in corporate worship, specifically when we gather together on the Lord's Day to sing to our God? Three things, and this is going to be really helpful. We praise the Lord, number one, for what he's done. Number two, we praise him for who he is. And number three, we praise him for what he will do. Oh, and all three of those elements are found in Exodus 15. We praise him for what he's done, we praise him for who he is, and we praise him for what he will do. All right, so number one, we praise him for what he's done. So praise initially looks back. Oh, so when we praise our Lord, where are we looking? To the cross into the empty tomb. Praise looks back at what the Lord has done. I'm going to move quickly now. It's Father's Day. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but just bear with me. <laughs> We're almost done. Exodus 15, 1, 4 and 5, 7 to 10 and verse 12. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has what? Thrown into the sea. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Number 5. The floods covered them. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. The major theme of Moses' song is what? It's the exodus. It's God's rescue of his people. Moses and all of Israel praise God for his salvation. We praise God for his work of rescue. He is the God of rescue. As the church, we are called to look back constantly to the cross and empty tomb and to sing of God's mighty work of rescue through his son, Jesus Christ. Our songs should express our gratitude. Everybody say gratitude. That's the first key word gratitude to the Lord for who he is and what he's done. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Woohoo! Amen? <laughs> Man, that's so good. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Moses' song further acknowledges God's faithfulness. The purpose of the Exodus was so that Israel, 
Egypt and the world might know that God is Lord, the faithful God who fights for his people, accomplishing his saving purposes. Exodus 9, 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose for his saving work is his glory. And his purpose is being accomplished. God is faithful. God says he's going to do something. He does it. What does that teach us about God? He's what? He's, he's faithful. And this is brought to light in verses 14 to 16. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. We'll come back to that. When we sing the gospel and praise God for his saving work, we must remember that it is the fulfillment of promise. When we sing of his salvation, we must sing of his faithfulness to save. The gospel didn't occur in a vacuum. Rather, it is a part of a larger story of promise in fulfillment. Let's quickly focus on the last phrase in verse 16 where it says, till the people pass by whom you have what? Purchased. Israel was a purchased people, yes. But the verb here, kana. Everybody say kana. Your Hebrew's improved, by the way. I'm listening. This word kana can also mean created. Oh, so Israel was God's newly created people. They were dead in slavery, hopeless and helpless, but God rescued them and established them as his people, his new people. And this is ultimately fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. Recall Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. What was the first thing? We praise the Lord for what he's done, and then secondly, we praise the Lord for who he is. And those two go hand in hand because his saving work, what he's done, reveals who he is. Now, just help me here. The fact that God would save sinners like us by sending his son to live the perfect life we could not live, die the sacrificial death on the cross we deserve, and then to be raised, what does that teach us about him? What kind of God is he? Help me. He's glorious. He's good, he's kind, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's loving. Amen, amen. Praise acknowledges who God is. And how do we know who God is? Through his works. We praise him for what he's done, and we praise him for who he is, and who he is is revealed through what he's done. Do you see the relationship between the two? His attributes are revealed through his saving actions. Now, let me quickly run through this. We're almost done. And I mean it this time. And I don't apologize for that. This is God's word. This is important. Let's keep going. You ready? This is really important. What attributes are recognized and brought to light in Moses' song? Did you catch him? He is my strength, verse 2. He is my salvation, verse 2. He is personal. Moses said he's my God. He's personal. We can call him my God. Amen? We so, we so often hear people say that blasphemously, right? My God. Man, that's so ugly. He's my God. 
Make sure you say that appropriately according to Scripture, not angrily or frustratingly. He's faithful. He's my father's God. What does that mean? Verse 2, God kept his earlier promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He is a warrior. Verse 3, he fights for his people. Come on now. He's holy. Verse 11, oh, I'm going to get you here. He's awesome. He's awesome. Verse 11, man, we have the phrase, he's awesome in glorious deeds. Who's awesome? Are we awesome? Who's awesome? God. He's awesome in glorious deeds. According to Doug Stewart, this means that what he does is always good and right and impressive at the same time. Can any of us claim that for ourselves, that what we do is always good and right and impressive all the time? Say it in Spanish. No. That word is reserved for who? For the Lord. So again, think twice before applying the word awesome to anything or anyone other than God. He's present, verse 13. He's loving, verse 13. He's a redeemer, verse 13. And of course, all of these attributes have been beautifully brought to light in Jesus because Jesus came to reveal God. God's, listen to this, God's attributes, God's character, both in form, ground, and fill out the praises of his people. God reveals to us his awesome character and attributes in his word. And in praise, we sing them back to him. Does that make sense? So, if we're going to praise the right way, what must we have? The word, because the word shows us God's matchless character, his attributes. We see them, we savor them, and we sing them back to him. Amen? So there is no, there's no true worship apart from the, the word. The word of God is necessary and central for our worship. When we sing, our songs must be filled with God's attributes and character revealed in his word. I'm so thankful we do that here. Amen? We don't sing these just feel-good, fluffy songs. We sing God's word. We read God's word. We hear God's word. We see God's word. Our worship must be word-centered. Amen? First Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So what do we see in Scripture? He's good, and his steadfast love, his chesed, endures forever. And we sing that back to him in praise. How else would we know that if not from his word? Would we know it? No. Psalm seven seventeen. I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. One more, and then our last point. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Number three, last point. We praise the Lord for what he'll do. What was number one? We praise the Lord for what he's done. So praise looks back. We praise the Lord for who he is. His character revealed through what he's done. And then finally, we praise the Lord for what he will, what? What he'll do. When the church gathers to sing, we must sing of what he's done, who he is, and what he will do. Praise looks ahead to what God will do. Our songs should declare our faith in God's faithfulness to bring his promises to fruition. 
Exodus 15, 17 to 18, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. <clears throat> Moses' song, really beginning in verse 14, moves into the future tense. That's really important. Praising God in faith for what he promises to do in the future. So much of what we sing looks ahead. Amen? Has the Lord finished his work? What are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for? The return of the king. Resurrection bodies, a new heaven and a new earth. And yes, a final judgment. Will God do it? Do we believe that? Should we sing about it? Because it's our hope. It's our hope. Oh, there's so much more I want to say here. Let me jump forward. <clears throat> One final note on Miriam's song. This is verses 20 and 21. After Moses' song concludes, Miriam, his sister, and all the women of Israel take up tambourines and they continue to praise the Lord in song. Why include this? Because praise begets praise. Praise is meant to be passed on. Doug Stewart notes, <clears throat> Moses had authored this great victory song. Miriam now popularized it among all the women so that it would be known and sung in every family, every home. The result was that every Israelite, whether descended from Abraham or newly joined to the nation, would know by heart the story of the great divine deliverance of God's people at the sea. We must teach our families God's grand story of rescue. And one way we do this is through, through song. And may this song of praise never end. And the good news, friends, it won't. It won't. In sum, we praise God for what he's done, who he is, and what he'll do. Therefore, what should mark our praise? This is important. Write this down. Gratitude, awe, and faith. Gratitude is our response to what he's done. Awe is our response to his character revealed in what he's done. Faith is our hope in what he'll do. So what should mark our praise? Gratitude, awe, and faith. When we gather, let's seek to decorate the Lord with praise and lift up his holy name, desiring for his greatness to be known more and more. Through who? Through us. Understand it this way. What we do now as God's church should reflect what is happening now in the heavenly courts. Do you realize that? Hey, listen, that's really important. What we do now when we gather is meant to be a reflection of what is happening right now in the heavenly courts. Amen? And it is meant to be a preview of what's to come. We should taste now when we gather what is going to be ours forever in glory. How does it taste? I hope it tastes good. And I hope every Lord's Day when you gather, your appetite, you're like, oh, I want it more. I can't wait. I had a brother in Washington that had a really hard job, stressful. I mean, he, he, he really did not like going to work. And that's not good, right? And we talked about that. But he said, man, brother, when I gather on Sunday, it gets me through the week. It's that recalibration. My mind is reset on the Lord and his glory and what's to come. And I can go into the week with joy and peace. Amen?
I have some questions for reflection. I'm going to encourage you to read those on your own. I want to end with this story. I lived in Africa. I've mentioned that back in 2010. And bro, if you're a girl, bro Hannah. Listen, that first worship service that I attended, I was a mess. I'm talking like snot, tears, and here's why. I'm halfway around the world, and I'm looking around. I'm the only white person in the room, and I'm looking around, and I'm saying, man, these people, they look different from me. They sound different, but we together are worshiping the same Lord, and it was a reminder of how the gospel has spread. Amen? And it was a reminder of what glory is going to look like. We'll look around, we'll see people different ages, different colors, but worshiping the same Lord by the Spirit of God forever. Oh, and I was like, uh, man, they're like, that dude's crazy. Are all Americans that crazy? Like, he's, I'm just crying, but I'm so excited because it was a preview of what's to come. That experience in Africa revealed the power of the gospel, the spread or scope of the gospel, and the glory of the gospel. And with this. When we worship together, it reveals the power of the gospel to rescue sinners. Because what are we? We're sinners rescued by the grace of God to now worship the king. Amen? I mean, listen, when you hear those around you singing, you should be moved. You should be. You should realize only by the grace of God. Are they not out there shaking their fists at God? They're now praising him with their voices. What joy. Amen? So when we worship together, it reveals the power of the gospel to rescue sinners like us, the spread of the gospel in gathering God's redeemed together from all over the world to sing his praises, and finally, the glory of the gospel, which is the majesty and beauty of Christ, our glorious Lord and Savior. Whenever we gather to worship, think of Sunday this way. It is meant to be a preview and a time of preparation for what is to come. So, when we gather, we are previewing and we're prepping. We're what? Previewing and we're prepping. And I hope when you gather, when we gather, we catch a glimpse of his glory. We taste it. How do you know you've been saved? How do you know you've been saved? You worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. What do the redeemed do? They worship. They commit to a life of worship, and they commit, here's the, here it is, oh, they commit to being a part of a worshiping body, the local church. Are you worshiping the Lord with your life and with the people of God? Do you gather for the honor of the king? Christ lived, and he died, and he rose again to create a worshiping body. Are you a part of that body? Have you trusted in Jesus? Repent and believe and commit to a life of worship with the people of God for the glory of God because the king is worthy. Amen? He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your worth, your matchless worth in beauty and majesty. God, I pray that we would give you our lives because you're worthy. I pray that we would commit to gathering with your body every Lord's Day to both preview your glory and to prepare 
for everlasting life with our King and his redeemed people. And I pray, Father, that through our gathering, as we enjoy and taste your goodness, as we behold you through your word, as it's sung and preached, that, Father, we look out to the world and we see those people that you put around us who don't know you, who don't know your worth and majesty, who don't know the joy that comes from having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would leave this place with a greater desire to make you known, so that by your grace, rebels can be turned into worshipers through hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name, and for his glory we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen.